0: Section 9 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carrie Hayes. The Descent of Man, Part 1, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 3. Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals. Part 3 the habitual use of articulate language is however peculiar to man but he uses in common with the lower animals inarticulate cries to express his meaning aided by gestures and the movements of the muscles of the face this especially holds good with the more simple and vivid feelings which are but little connected with our higher intelligence our cries of pain fear surprise anger together with their appropriate actions and the murmur of a mother to her beloved child, are more expressive than any words. That which distinguishes man from the lower animals is not the understanding of articulate sounds, for, as everyone knows, dogs understand many words and sentences. In this respect, they are at the same stage of development as infants, between the ages of ten and twelve months, who understand many words and short sentences, but cannot yet utter a single word. It is not the mere articulation which is our distinguishing character, for parrots and other birds possess this power, nor is it the mere capacity of connecting definite sounds with definite ideas, for it is certain that some parrots, which have been taught to speak, connect unerringly words with things and persons with events. As took, one of the founders of the noble science of philology, observes, language is an art like brewing or baking. But writing would have been a better simile. It certainly is not a true instinct, for every language has to be learnt. It differs, however, widely from all ordinary arts, for man has an instinctive tendency to speak, as we see in the babble of our young children, whilst no child has an instinctive tendency to brew, bake, or write. Moreover, no philologist now supposes that any language has been deliberately invented it has been slowly and unconsciously developed by many steps the sounds uttered by birds offer in several respects the nearest analogy to language for all the members of the same species utter the same instinctive cries expressive of their emotions and all the kinds which sing exert their power instinctively but the actual song and even the call notes are learnt from their parents or foster parents. These sounds, as Danes Barrington has proved, are no more innate than languages in man. The first attempts to sing may be compared to the imperfect endeavour of a child to babble. The young males continue practicing, or as the birdcatchers say, recording, for ten or eleven months. Their first essays show hardly a rudiment of the future song but as they grow older, we can perceive what they are aiming at, and at last they are said to sing their song round. Nestlings, which have learnt the song of a distinct species, as with the canary birds educated in the Tyrol, teach and transmit their new song to their offspring. The slight natural differences of song in the same species inhabiting different districts may be appositely compared, as Barrington remarks, to provincial dialects. And the songs of allied, though distinct species, may be compared with the languages of distinct races of man. I have given the foregoing details to show that an instinctive tendency to acquire an art is not peculiar to man. With respect to the origin of articulate language, after having read on the one side the highly interesting works of Mr. Hensley Wedgwood, the Reverend F. Farrar, and Professor Schleicher, and the celebrated lectures of Professor Max Müller on the other side, I cannot doubt that language owes its origin to the imitation and modification of various natural sounds, the voices of other animals, and man's own instinctive cries, aided by signs and gestures. When we treat of sexual selection, we shall see that primeval man, or rather some early progenitor of man, probably first used his voice in producing true musical cadences that is, in singing, as do some of the gibbon apes at the present day, and we may conclude from a widely spread analogy that this power would have been especially exerted during the courtship of the sexes, would have expressed various emotions, such as love, jealousy, triumph, and would have served as a challenge to rivals. It is, therefore, probable that the imitation of musical cries by articulate sounds, may have given rise to words expressive of various complex emotions. The strong tendency in our nearest allies, the monkeys, in microcephalous idiots, and in the barbarous races of mankind, to imitate whatever they hear deserves notice, as bearing on the subject of imitation. Since monkeys certainly understand much that is said to them by man, and when wild utter signal cries of danger to their fellows, and since fowls give distinct warnings for danger on the ground, or in the sky from hawks, both as well as a third cry intelligible to dogs, may not some unusually wise ape-like animal have imitated the growl of a beast of prey, and thus told his fellow monkeys the nature of the expected danger? This would have been a first step in the formation of a language. As the voice was used more and more, the vocal organs would have been strengthened and perfected through the principle of inherited effects of use, and this would have reacted on the power of speech. But the relation between the continued use of language and the development of the brain has no doubt been far more important. The mental powers in some early progenitor of man must have been more highly developed than in any existing ape before even the most imperfect form of speech could have come into use but we may confidently believe that the continued use and advancement of this power would have reacted on the mind itself by enabling and encouraging it to carry on long trains of thought. A complex train of thought can no more be carried on without the aid of words, whether spoken or silent, than a long calculation without the use of figures or algebra. It appears also that even an ordinary train of thought almost requires or is greatly facilitated by some form of language, for the dumb, deaf, and blind girl Laura Bridgman was observed to use her fingers whilst dreaming. Nevertheless, a long succession of vivid and connected ideas may pass through the mind without the aid of any form of language, as we may infer from the movements of dogs during their dreams. We have also seen that animals are able to reason to a certain extent manifestly without the aid of language. The intimate connection between the brain, as it is now developed in us, and the faculty of speech, is well shown by those curious cases of brain disease, in which speech is specially affected, as when the power to remember substantives is lost, whilst other words can be correctly used, or where substantives of a certain class, or all except the initial letters of substantives, and proper names are forgotten there is no more improbability in the continued use of the mental and vocal organs leading to the inherited changes in their structures and functions than in the case of handwriting which depends partly on the form of the hand and partly on the disposition of the mind and handwriting is certainly inherited several writers more especially professor max muller have lately insisted that the use of language implies the power of forming general concepts, and that as no animals are supposed to possess this power, an impassable barrier is formed between them and man. With respect to animals, I have already endeavored to show that they have this power, at least in a rude and incipient degree. As far as concerns infants of from 10 to 11 months old and deaf-mutes, It seems to me incredible that they should be able to connect certain sounds with certain general ideas as quickly as they do, unless such ideas were already formed in their minds. The same remark may be extended to the more intelligent animals, as Mr. Leslie Stephen observes. A dog frames a general concept of cats or sheep and knows the corresponding words as well as a philosopher and the capacity to understand is as good a proof of vocal intelligence, though in an inferior degree, as the capacity to speak. Why the organs now used for speech should have been originally perfected for this purpose rather than any other organs, it is not difficult to see. Ants have considerable powers of intercommunication by means of their antennae, as shown by Huber, who devotes a whole chapter to their language. We might have used our fingers as efficient instruments, for a person with practice can report to a deaf man every word of a speech rapidly delivered at a public meeting, but the loss of our hands, whilst thus employed, would have been a serious inconvenience. As all the higher mammals possess vocal organs, constructed on the same general plan as ours, and used as a means of communication, it was obviously probable that these same organs would be still further developed if the power of communication had to be improved. And this has been affected by the aid of adjoining and well-adapted parts, namely the tongue and lips. The fact of the higher apes not using their vocal organs for speech no doubt depends on their intelligence not having been sufficiently advanced. The possession by them of organs which, with long-continued practice, might have been used for speech, although not thus used, is paralleled by the case of many birds, which possess organs fitted for singing, though they never sing. Thus, the nightingale and crow have vocal organs similarly constructed, these being used by the former for diversified song, and by the latter only for croaking. An excellent observer, Mr. Blackwell, Remarks that the magpie learns to pronounce single words and even short sentences more readily than almost any other British bird, yet, as he adds after long and closely investigating its habits, he has never known it in a state of nature display any unusual capacity for imitation. If it be asked why apes have not had their intellects developed to the same degree as that of man, general causes only can be assigned an answer and it is unreasonable to expect anything more definite, considering our ignorance with respect to the successive stages of development through which each creature has passed. The formation of different languages and of distinct species, and the proofs that both have been developed through a gradual process, are curiously parallel, but we can trace the formation of many words further back than that of species for we can perceive how they actually arose from the imitation of various sounds. We find in distinct languages striking homologies due to community of descent and analogies due to a similar process of formation. The manner in which certain letters or sounds change when others change is very like correlated growth. We have in both cases the reduplication of parts, the effects of long-continued use, and so forth. The frequent presence of rudiments, both in languages and in species, is still more remarkable. The letter M in the word am means I, so that in the expression I am, a superfluous and useless rudiment has been retained. In the spelling also of words, letters often remain as the rudiments of ancient forms of pronunciation. Languages, like organic beings, can be classed in groups under groups and they can be classed either naturally according to descent or artificially by other characters dominant languages and dialects spread widely and lead to the gradual extinction of other tongues a language like a species when once extinct never as sir c lyle remarks reappears the same language never has two birthplaces Distinct languages may be crossed or blended together. We see variability in every tongue, and new words are continually cropping up. But as there is a limit to the powers of the memory, single words, like whole languages, gradually become extinct. As Max Müller has well remarked, a struggle for life is constantly going on amongst the words and grammatical forms in each language, the better, the shorter. The easier forms are constantly gaining the upper hand, and they owe their success to their own inherent virtue. To these more important causes of the survival of certain words, mere novelty and fashion may be added. For there is in the mind of man a strong love for slight changes in all things. The survival or preservation of certain favored words in the struggle for existence is natural selection. The perfectly regular and wonderfully complex construction of the languages of many barbarous nations has often been advanced as proof either of the divine origin of these languages or of the high art and former civilization of their founders. Thus, F. von Schlegel writes, In those languages which appear to be at the lowest grade of intellectual culture, we frequently observe a very high and elaborate degree of art in their grammatical structure, This is especially the case with the Basque, the Laponian, and many of the American languages. But it is assuredly an error to speak of any language as an art, in the sense of its having been elaborately and methodically formed. Philologists now admit that conjugations, declensions, etc., originally existed as distinct words since joined together. And as such words express the most obvious relations between objects and persons, it is not surprising that they should have been used by the men of most races during the earliest ages. With respect to perfection, the following illustration will best show how easily we may err. A crinoid sometimes consists of no less than 150,000 pieces of shell, all arranged with perfect symmetry in radiating lines. But a naturalist does not consider an animal of this kind as more perfect than a bilateral one with comparatively few parts, and with none of these parts alike, excepting on the opposite sides of the body. He justly considers the differentiation and specialization of organs as the test of perfection. So with languages the most symmetrical and complex ought not to be ranked above irregular abbreviated and bastardized languages which have borrowed expressive words and useful forms of construction from various conquering conquered or immigrant races from these few and imperfect remarks i conclude that the extremely complex and regular construction of many barbarous languages is no proof that they owe their origin to a special act of creation Nor, as we have seen, does the faculty of articulate speech in itself offer any insuperable objection to the belief that man has been developed from some lower form. Sense of Beauty This sense has been declared to be peculiar to man. I refer here only to the pleasure given by certain colors, forms, and sounds, and which may fairly be called a sense of the beautiful with cultivated men such sensations are however intimately associated with complex ideas and trains of thought when we behold a male bird elaborately displaying his graceful plumes or splendid colours before the female whilst other birds not thus decorated make no such display it is impossible to doubt that she admires the beauty of her male partner as women everywhere deck themselves with these plumes the beauty of such ornaments cannot be disputed. As we shall see later, the nests of hummingbirds and the playing passages of bowerbirds are tastefully ornamented with gaily coloured objects, and this shows that they must receive some kind of pleasure from the sight of such things. With the great majority of animals, however, the taste for the beautiful is confined, as far as we can judge, to the attractions of the opposite sex. The sweet strains poured forth by many male birds during the season of love are certainly admired by the females, of which fact evidence will hereafter be given. If female birds had been incapable of appreciating the beautiful colors, the ornaments, and the voices of their male partners, all the labor and anxiety exhibited by the latter in displaying their charms before the females would have been thrown away, and this is impossible to admit. Why certain bright colors should excite pleasure cannot, I presume, be explained any more than why certain flavors and scents are agreeable. But habit has something to do with the result, for that which is at first unpleasant to our senses ultimately becomes pleasant, and habits are inherited. With respect to sounds, Helmholtz has explained to a certain extent on physiological principles why harmonies and certain cadences are agreeable. But besides this, sounds frequently recurring at irregular intervals are highly disagreeable, as everyone will admit who has listened at night to the irregular flapping of a rope on board ship. The same principle seems to come into play with vision, as the eye prefers symmetry or figures with some regular recurrence. Patterns of this kind are employed by even the lowest savages as ornaments and they have been developed through sexual selection for the adornment of some male animals. Whether we can or not give any reason for the pleasure thus derived from vision and hearing, yet man and many of the lower animals are alike pleased by the same colors, graceful shadings and forms, and the same sounds. The taste for beautiful, at least as far as the female beauty is concerned, is not of a special nature in the human mind for it differs widely in the different races of man, and is not quite the same even in the different nations of the same race. Judging from the hideous ornaments and the equally hideous music admired by most savages, it might be urged that their aesthetic faculty was not so highly developed as in certain animals, for instance as in birds. Obviously no animal would be capable of admiring such scenes as the heavens at night, a beautiful landscape or refined music, but such high tastes are acquired through culture and depend on complex associations. They are not enjoyed by barbarians or by uneducated persons. Many of the faculties which have been of inestimable service to man for his progressive advancement, such as the powers of the imagination, wonder, curiosity, an undefined sense of beauty, a tendency to imitation, and the love of excitement or novelty, could hardly fail to lead to capricious changes of customs and fashions. I have alluded to this point because a recent writer has oddly fixed on caprice as one of the most remarkable and typical differences between savages and brutes. But not only can we partially understand how it is that man is from various conflicting influences rendered capricious, but that the lower animals are, as we shall hereafter see, likewise capricious in their affections, aversions, and sense of beauty. There is also reason to suspect that they love novelty for its own sake. Belief in God. Religion. There is no evidence that man was aboriginally endowed with the ennobling belief in the existence of an omnipotent God. On the contrary, there is ample evidence derived not from hasty travellers, but from men who have long resided with savages, that numerous races have existed, and still exist, who have no idea of one or more gods, and who have no words in their languages to express such an idea. The question is, of course, wholly distinct from that higher one, whether there exists a creator and ruler of the universe. And this has been answered in the affirmative by some of the highest intellects that have ever existed. If, however, we include under the term religion the belief in unseen or spiritual agencies, the case is wholly different, for this belief seems to be universal with the less civilized races. Nor is it difficult to comprehend how it arose. As soon as the important faculties of the imagination, wonder, and curiosity, together with some power of reasoning, had become partially developed, man would naturally crave to understand what was passing around him, and would have vaguely speculated on his own existence. As Mr. Lennon has remarked, some explanation of the phenomena of life a man must feign for himself, and to judge from the universality of it, The simplest hypothesis, and the first to occur to men, seems to have been that the natural phenomena are ascribable to the presence in animals, plants, and things, and in the forces of nature, of such spirits prompting to action as men are conscious they themselves possess. It is also probable, as Mr. Tyler has shown, that dreams may have first given rise to the notion of spirits. For savages do not readily distinguish between subjective and objective impressions. When a savage dreams, the figures which appear before him are believed to have come from a distance, and to stand over him, or the soul of the dreamer goes out on its travels and comes home with a remembrance of what it has seen. In a like manner, Mr. Herbert Spencer, in his ingenious essay in the fortnightly review, accounts for the earliest forms of religious belief throughout the world by man being led through dreams, shadows, and other causes to look at himself as a double essence, corporeal and spiritual. As the spiritual being is supposed to exist after death, and to be powerful, it is propitiated by various gifts and ceremonies, and its aid invoked. He then further shows that names or nicknames given from some animal or other object to the early progenitors or founders of a tribe are supposed after a long interval to represent the real progenitor of the tribe, and such animal or object is then naturally believed still to exist as a spirit, is held sacred, and worshipped as a god. Nevertheless, I cannot but suspect that there is a still earlier and ruder stage, when anything which manifests power or movement is thought to be endowed with some form of life, and with mental faculties analogous to our own. But until the faculties of imagination, curiosity, reason, etc., have been fairly well developed in the mind of man, his dreams would not have led him to believe in spirits any more than in the case of a dog. The tendency in savages to imagine that natural objects and agencies are animated by spiritual or living essences is perhaps illustrated by a little fact which I once noticed. My dog, a full-grown and very sensible animal, was lying on the lawn during a hot and still day. But at a little distance, a slight breeze occasionally moved an open parasol, which would have been wholly disregarded by the dog had anyone stood near it. As it was, every time that the parasol slightly moved, the dog growled fiercely and barked. He must, I think, have reasoned to himself in a rapid and unconscious manner that movement without any apparent cause indicated the presence of some strange living agent and that no stranger had a right to be on his territory. The belief in spiritual agencies would easily pass into the belief in the existence of one or more gods. For savages would naturally attribute to spirits the same passions, the same love of vengeance, or simplest form of justice, and the same affections which they themselves feel. The Fugians appear to be in this respect in an intermediate condition for when the surgeon on board the beagle shot some young ducklings as specimens, York Minster declared in the most solemn manner, "Oh, Mr. Beau, much rain, much snow, blow much." and this was, evidently, a retributive punishment for wasting human food. So again he related how, when his brother killed a wild man, storms long raged, much rain and snow fell. Yet we could never discover that the Fugians believed in what we should call a god, or practiced any religious rites, and Jemmy Button, with justifiable pride, stoutly maintained that there was no devil in his land. This latter assertion is the more remarkable. As with savages, the belief in bad spirits is far more common than that in good ones. The feeling of religious devotion is a highly complex one, consisting of love, complete submission to an exalted and mysterious superior, a strong sense of dependence, fear, reverence, gratitude, hope for the future, and perhaps other elements. No being could experience so complex an emotion until advanced in his intellectual and moral faculties to at least a moderately high level. Nevertheless, we see some distant approach to this state of mind in the deep love of a dog for his master, associated with complete submission, some fear, and perhaps other feelings. The behavior of a dog, when returning to his master after an absence, and as i may add of a monkey to his beloved keeper is widely different from that towards their fellows in the latter case the transports of joy appear to be somewhat less and the sense of equality is shown in every action professor braubach goes so far as to maintain that a dog looks on his master as on a god the same high mental faculties which first led man to believe in unseen spiritual agencies then in fetishism, polytheism, and ultimately in monotheism, would infallibly lead him, as long as his reasoning powers remained poorly developed, to various strange superstitions and customs. Many of these are terrible to think of, such as the sacrifice of human beings to a blood-loving god, the trial of innocent persons by the ordeal of poison or fire, witchcraft, etc., Yet it is well occasionally to reflect on these superstitions, for they show us what an infinite debt of gratitude we owe to the improvement of our reason, to science, and to our accumulated knowledge. As Sir J. Lubbock has well observed, it is not too much to say that the horrible dread of unknown evil hangs like a thick cloud over savage life and embitters every pleasure. These miserable and indirect consequences of our highest faculties may be compared with the incidental and occasional mistakes of the instincts of the lower animals. End of recording. End of section 9. Recording by Carrie Hayes.